With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This episode of Success How I Did It is brought to you by Mack Weldon, the premier men's clothing company. You can save 20% off your order at MacWeldon.com using promo code SUCCESS. I think of myself as a nine-year-old kid having a blast. Peter Diamandis has made a career of making that nine-year-old happy. He's the man behind companies making science fiction come true. The X Prize, Singularity University, Human Longevity, Inc. They're as wild as they sound. This is Success How I Did It from Business Insider. I'm Rich Filoni. Diamandis wanted to explore space. His parents wanted him to be a doctor. His solution to this problem? Do both. He's dedicated himself to making space travel accessible to not just the government. Opening up space, as he calls it. And recently, he's been trying to increase the human lifespan. His newest project, the Cellularity Program, is a big step in that direction. Diamandis thinks someday soon, humans might live for much, much longer. Like so many kids in the 60s, his fascination with space started with the real-life sci-fi he saw on TV. And I remember it was the Apollo program that was at the top of my consciousness. I mean, I clipped out every article, I read every article, and then Star Trek came on, and Apollo showed us what we could do now, and Star Trek showed us where we were going. I was hooked. It was, it was <laughs> my purpose, mission in life. I knew that was everything, right? And so it drove me. I can honestly say everything I've ever done in my life is a result of that childhood passion and that relentless drive to want to make those dreams come true. Were you someone who had like Star Trek posters? Oh yeah, I mean it was it was yeah, Star Trek posters. I remember I had a set of 3 by 5 cards with every star log that Captain Kirk had recorded, you know, star date entry. I had every Apollo mission. I had filing cabinets full of clipped articles and then my friend Billy Greenberg and I would build Estes rockets, right? So I, I'm one of the yeah. I used I, to do those. Those are so much fun. Yeah, yeah. one of the things I was proudest of was we won first place in the Estes design contest, and and so we built all the rockets you get from Estes. Then we got raw parts and started building our own. Then we started ordering chemicals. This is back <laughs> in the day where you could actually order potassium perchlorate, potassium <laughs> nitrate, and magnesium and sulfur and charcoal, and not be a terrorist. So were your parents very strict? Did they? give you an option like this is what you have to do with your life to be successful? Listen, I grew up in a in a very close, loving Greek immigrant family where it was a respect of education, right? So there was never a question about the importance of education and also the importance of working hard and, you know, sort of grit and not giving up. 
was an important part of it. And there was a, I remember one time I, I was in the kitchen. I was probably about sixth, seventh grade. And I told my mom, I finally fessed up. I, uh, I want to be an astronaut. And she goes, that's nice, son, but you're going to be a doctor, right? And so there was this split that occurred in my life yeah. where half of me academically was pursuing medicine and all of that and the other half of me was pursuing this passion of space and that's really continued i finally reintegrated myself so to speak now in the last decade but it was always both sides of the coin were you sad about that or was it like oh no i'll just do this on the side it's it's it was it was fine I, i wanted to make my parents happy you know i laugh and i say i went to medical school when i finally got my diploma i created some color photographs of them color copy sent to my mom and my dad and then I went off and started my rocket companies so you know that was my (laughs) pursuit are you still driven by that feeling like the two sides of the coin that you had as a kid you know I think of myself as a parallel serial entrepreneur and I think of entrepreneurship as my art form of creating launching and helping drive amazing companies right and so I've had three parts of my life three segments that I'm very proud of that are self-consistent. I mean, one is opening up space. The other one has been really supporting entrepreneurs to take moonshots. And that's the XPRIZE Foundation. You know, we've launched $150 million in prizes to incentivize teams to do incredibly crazy big things. And then Singularity University, where we're supporting entrepreneurs and to take billion-person impact moonshots. And so that's one part. And then the third part is this field of longevity, of helping create an extraordinary, extended, healthy human lifespan. And when you're taking such an ambitious approach to life, and you're considering how your parents instilled this discipline in you, have you passed that on to your two sons, your, yeah. your twin six-year-old boys? Yeah, well, so Dax and Jed are six and a half, okay. and so <laughs> their passion is Minecraft and Legos and Pokemon right now. But I think about this, right? And I do a lot of keynotes, and I'm in the boardrooms, and I'm speaking to companies, and the conversation always come up in this time of exponential change. What are you teaching your kids? Right, So I've thought about this a lot, and the realization was there are three things that I think are important right now for anybody to teach their kids. I don't care if they're three years old or 23 years old. Number one is an obligation to help them find their passion. And for me, my passion was space and not medicine early on. I'd love if they followed my footsteps on any of these areas, but what's more important is for them to find their passion and to support them in that passion because when they find that passion, they will self-educate like I did in space. It drove me more than my parents could drive me. My own passion drove me, but it was my passion. All right, so what's their passion? The second thing is helping them remain curious. And I talk about this because I think curiosity is the single most important attribute for success. We're heading towards a world in which you're going to be able to know anything, a world in which there are trillions of sensors and AI integrated layers and imaging from drones and satellites and augmented reality glasses and everything. So we're going to enter a world where you can ask any question and get an answer. And so when I drop my kids off at school, when I'm there, I say, ask great questions today. And when I pick them up, Or when they come home, it's like, what questions did you ask? What questions did you have for dad? Getting them into this kind of comfort level of asking crazy questions. Because I think that's a differentiator. The the third final element I think is important is grit. It's not giving up. 
And so there's a motto in the household of saying we never, ever, ever, ever give up. And I think a lot of my successes over the years have been these overnight successes after 10 years of hard work. So it seems like it just comes out of nowhere, but your whole, oh my God, your whole yeah. life has been put into it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so every single company is capitalizing on either my hard work or my partner's hard work, right? And, and even when you were able to open up space, as you were saying, yeah. with the X Prize, that was year, many years in the making. What did that feel like when yeah. you were finally able to have that successful rocket launch in 2004. Yeah. So the journey began in December 93. I remember that I was visiting my parents for Christmas and a dear friend of mine, Greg Marinak, gave me a copy of Lindbergh's autobiography called The Spirit of St. Louis. And I was reading the book and I had no idea that Lindbergh crossed the Atlantic in 1927 to win a prize. I thought he did it on a whim. But in fact, a Frenchman, Raymond Orteig, living in New York, had offered up a $25,000 prize and Lindbergh, the most unlikely guy, pulls it off and becomes massively famous and opens up aviation, more importantly. Because I was frustrated by this point that NASA had not fulfilled on its missions, right? I was no closer to going to space. And so I said, maybe a prize to incentivize private investments and private exploration of space. So it was a $10 million for the first team to build a three-person spaceship carrying three adults up 100 kilometers landing, and then very importantly, with a, building a reusable ship to go again. 11 years later, it finally happens. Bert Rutan builds Spaceship One, backed by Paul Allen's funding, and October 4th, 2004, wins the prize. And I remember that moment, and I have a mental image of what's going on. The ship had just gone to space successfully against all the odds and landed, and I felt like I was at the top of a mountain I had just climbed for 11 years. I remember when I looked around, all I saw were higher mountain peaks. So it was this interesting, you know, realization that it is the journey, not the destination. Did you give yourself any time to kind of savor that moment or was it almost a letdown in a way? I don't think it was a letdown. I mean, it was a relief. Uh, One of the things that we were dealing with was human lives and it was very possible that Sure, the safety could have been a, could have been a tragedy yep. and loss of life there. So that was a relief. The fact that the prize was won, we had set a deadline of December 31st, and this is October 4th, and there's you know two months left of the money, which was backed by an insurance policy that would have vaporized. And so the <laughs> so it was a huge relief. Yeah, it was a huge relief. I mean, yeah. we would not be having this conversation right now <laughs> had they not won that prize, perhaps. But at the end of the day, I gave myself you know that evening to celebrate. But it was as is the human psyche, uh, like, that was cool. Okay, what's next? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And didn't that spacecraft have a spot in the National Air and Space yeah. Museum next to the Spirit of St. Yeah, Louis, which very, was Lindbergh's plane? So in the Milestone Gallery Hall that Boeing sponsors, number one, there's the Apollo 11 lunar lander. It's a backup. The actual one's on the moon, obviously. But then you see Lindbergh's Spirit of St. Louis. You see the Bell X-1 that Jaeger you know, broke the sound barrier, the X-15, and Spaceship One, first private vehicle to go into space. Yeah. So whenever you have a chance to look at that, is does the nine-year-old inside? Oh, the nine-year-old, is, if I let myself, the nine-year-old becomes very proud. But when I look at all of those amazing vehicles, I think about all of the 
hardship, divorces, lost jobs, uh, you know, centuries of work, uh, the crazy risks that we're taking and realizing that all of these amazing success stories have had their own overnight success after 11 years or 10 years of hard work. Uh, you have to give credit to the thousand projects that almost got there that didn't as well. So when you, you see a big success, you're always imagining the countless lives behind it. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, none of this stuff is simple. It all takes extraordinary passion, dedication, and uh, a lot of times it doesn't happen. And you have to pick up pieces and start again. We'll be right back after this from the Insider Picks team. My name is Bretton Fischetti. I work on the Insider Picks team at Business Insider. Insider Picks' goal is to review products and services for our readers and make recommendations so that they're spending their money on smart and useful products. And one of the products that we really like is Mack Weldon. They make a ton of products for men. They make underwear, they make t-shirts, they make socks, and a ton of other great products. Their stuff is super comfortable and it lasts a really long time. My favorite Mack Weldon products are their Silver Line. This is some technology that they've developed where they integrate the, the actual metal silver into the fabric of the products. And they're supposed to be antimicrobial, which means that they're good for eliminating odors and you can definitely feel a little bit more confident. Those are the products that I always put in my suitcase whenever I travel. They're number one and two on my priority list because when you're traveling, you're not entirely sure like when your next shower is gonna be if you're on a long flight. I realized that what I'm paying for is superior quality. So socks that cost half this price don't last half as long, they last less. And so what I'm going to be doing is keeping these same pairs of socks for longer and the same with the underwear and the shirts. They don't wear out at the same rate. So you end up paying more, but overall it's a much better value for your money. Now you can go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using the promo code SUCCESS. That's 20% off your order using promo code SUCCESS. When you were at Harvard Medical School, you founded the International Space University. <laughs> and I'm just wondering, regardless of how much time you had spent on that, did you ever sleep? It seemed as if you were just <laughs> never, never stopping. So here's the challenge, right? So I am, I'm at MIT as an undergrad, and I'm studying molecular biology as pre-med. But on nights and weekends, I'm at the manned vehicle lab doing research on space. And I'm running SEDS in my fraternity dorm room because my heart, my soul were in the space world. My mind and my sort of parental obligation, if you would, were in medicine. And, and, I, and what was SEDS? SEDS was Students for the Exploration and Development of Space. It was my first group. It was a national, then a global student space organization. And then I go to medical school, very proud. I got into a joint MIT-Harvard program. And while I was there, one of the ideas that my dear colleagues Todd Hawley and Bob Richards and I came out of SEDS for was this idea of a space university. And it was such a gripping idea. And I love the startup. I love the energy of the creation. And I remember during my third year of medical school, during your rotations, I would go and I would volunteer for the nighttime emergency room rotations, which would start at 10 p.m. and go till 6 a.m., and then I would go and sleep from 6 a.m. till noon, and then I'd go to the office from noon until 10 p.m. And that was my cycle. And then I finally take a leave of absence from medical school when 
ISU, International Space University, was really getting going, and I went back to MIT to do my engineering degrees. But when I was in medical school, I got called to the dean's office one day. I had bought one of those Motorola brick phones, and I would go out of surgery, and I would call the office and, and check what's going on. And my dean was like, Peter, what are you doing? You're, you're a bright <laughs> kid. Your interns are telling me you're not paying attention. You're not focusing. Do you want to graduate? I mean, I'm breaking down to tears right now, and I'm saying, yes, I want to graduate. I promised my parents I would graduate, and I fessed up on everything that was going on with ISU and my launch company, uh, International Microspace. And I, I said, you know, we're doing engine development tasks and all of this. And he goes, okay, all right, here's the deal. If you pass part two of the boards and you promise never to practice medicine, I'll let you graduate. <laughs> So uh, he kept his end of the bargain, uh, and I kept mine. Wow. So that was kind of like a turning point in your life. It, it was a turning yeah. point in my life because I was able to be done with that obligation. And, of course, decades later, my medical background was, has been extraordinarily valuable to me in co-founding Human Longevity and, and Cellularity with two incredible leaders in the field. When I think of you, I think of you as one of these people who are out to basically like re-engineer humanity and just like find ways to like have technology basically take humanity to a new level. Where does this come from in you, this desire? This is the most exciting time ever to be alive. Uh, sensors, networks, AI, robotics, 3D printing, synthetic biology, AR, VR, blockchain, cellular medicine – all these technologies are transforming the world. And I think about this and truly believe we're about to transform the human race. Not 100 years, not 50 years, not 30 years. I think it's the next 20 years. I'm here in New York right now with my, my brother and my dear colleague, Dr. Bob Hariri, who's the CEO and founder and uh, chairman of Cellularity. And Cellularity is a company that's commercializing cellular medicine derived from the placenta, the human placenta. It's the richest source of stem cells and immunoactive cells that have the potential to extend the healthy human lifespan as one of the attributes and also combat cancer and autoimmune disease and many others. But, you know, I'm 56 years old right now. Uh, I feel still like a nine-year-old kid. Actually, I feel like a 29-year-old <laughs> kid most of the time. But, you know, I want to see the next 30, 40 years. It's the most exciting time ever. How long do you think that humans can end up living. Do you have a vision for this? I remember when I was in medical school, I was doing my engineering degree and my medical degree, much like Bob Hurry is both an MD and an engineer. And I remember seeing a TV show on long-lived sea life. And in the show, it talked about the notion that whales and sharks and turtles could live hundreds of years, theoretically as long as 700 years. And I remember thinking to myself, if they can, why can't we? Clearly, it's either a hardware or software problem, and I set a, a ridiculous goal of 700 years because, frankly, if you can live 150 or 200 years, you're then intercepting extraordinary technologies, nanotechnologies, and, and so forth. So I don't know, but I, I do think of my children being able to consider an indefinite lifespan. Modern, so basically living forever, yeah, literally. I, I think modern medicine will talk about living to 100, living in 120 the longest-lived humans today are, you know, late 120s, 126, 128, and we'll find out how to do this, how to extend the lifespan. We're we're doing extraordinary things in AI and nanotechnology, and 
And so it's just the beginning. People have a tendency to extrapolate the future based upon the past, but we're in a period of exponential growth. And so I don't think we can really know how powerful we'll be in 10 or 20 years. Is this going to be just restricted to only the wealthiest in the world, the wealthiest nations, the wealthiest individuals? And is that going to leave some of the more impoverished countries or individuals out of this evolution? So if you look at the numbers and the trends, the answer is no. What we're seeing around the world is this massive uplifting of humanity. We only have to go back 100 years ago, where it was the king and the queen on the hilltop, and then the rest of the world in poverty, right? It was a couple of haves and all the have-nots. Today, we're seeing this massive increase in the middle class. We're seeing globally the per capita income for every nation triple. The lifespan has doubled in the last 100 years. We're going to double it again. We're seeing the cost of food globally drop, you know, 30, 40-fold, cost of transportation 100-fold, you know, communications millions of fold. And we're at a point at which in the next 10 years, we're going to take all of the human race out of extreme poverty. It's as uplifting. So when I speak about this, I talk about we're going from a world of have and have-nots to a world of haves, and yes, there'll be super-haves. But I believe we're heading towards a world where every man, woman, and child, every man, woman, and child will have access to the best education, the best health care, water, food, energy. You know, I'm holding up a cell phone here. A child in Mumbai on a smartphone or a feature phone with access to Google or Baidu has access to the world's information at the same level as Larry Page, the CEO of Alphabet, right? This complete democratization of access to information. This is also going to happen in healthcare and education. I'm very clear about that. We have an amazing global learning XPRIZE today, uh, funded by Elon Musk, $15 million. Um, we had 700 teams enter this XPRIZE. We asked them to build a piece of Android software that could take a child in the middle of no place, from illiteracy to basic reading, writing, numeracy in 18 months on their own, no school, no literate adults. Google gave us 8,000 tablets. We had 700 teams enter. We narrowed it down eventually to five finalists. We put those five finalists on the tablets and were in villages throughout Tanzania testing it on, on children, their families, the villages to uplift them. These devices, these tablets will eventually be free because someone will want your data or want you to buy on their Amazon device. The same thing is going to happen in healthcare. The best diagnosticians will be AIs. The best surgeons will be robots. And the cost of that is going to diminish down to near zero. Well, just a few years ago, former President Bill Clinton introduced you at a Clinton Foundation event and basically portrayed you as this is someone who, this is like a beacon of optimism. <laughs> was that validating for everything you're, you're doing here? It was. I was the closing speaker at the Clinton Global Initiative. And my book at that time, Abundance, was one of President Clinton's favorite books. And his exact closing was, Peter, why are you so positive about the future? Don't you watch the news? And I said, no, I don't watch the news, President Clinton. And I look at the data and I went on on a diatribe about how most of the news media is focused on all the negative stories all day long because we pay 10 times more attention to negative news and positive news because that's we're evolutionarily advantaged to do that, right? A piece of bad news 100,000 years ago meant you were dead, your genes were out of the gene pool. But the data is extraordinary. And, you know, there's another amazing thinker, Steven Pinker, 
from Harvard who wrote a book called The Better Angels of Our Nature. Yep. And Stephen will show you that we're living during the most peaceful time ever in human history. Even and when pe- it doesn't feel like And it. people go, what? Are you nuts? You know, well, yeah, <laughs> but when you're watching the negative news all the time and every shooting, God forbid, you know, we've had some horrific shootings around the world, is brought to you in living color over and over and over again on every device you have, you feel like you're being, you know, just under barrage. But we forget about the way the world was 100 years ago or 200 years ago. It was brutal, right? Far worse than it is today. We're living in a much more civilized world, and the data pans that out. Well, and on that note of optimism, you gave a TED Talk where you explained this story of uh, taking the physicist Stephen Hawking into uh, zero G. And I think that's just a fantastic story. Could you explain that? That was one of my that? favorite moments. So back when I was at MIT uh, as a grad student, I had some friends of mine who were getting on NASA's zero-G airplane. It's as uh, euphemistically called the Vomit Comet. We don't call it that, but it's a parabolic airplane where you get a chance to be weightless for 30 seconds at a time. And I so badly wanted to do that. It was like my chance to, to taste a little bit of weightlessness in space. And I could not get on. I begged everybody. I volunteered to be, be a you know, guinea pig. At the end of the day, I started a company with two amazing people, Byron Lichtenberg and Ray Cronice. We started a company called Zero G. I was a CEO and we, after 11 years of hard work, got permission from the FAA to do these parabolic flights and offer it to the public. I had met Stephen Hawking through the XPRIZE. And he said, can you get me into space? And I said, I can't do that right now, but I could give you a chance to fly on zero G. You know, I thought the idea of the world's expert in gravity, getting a chance to experience Pretty zero cool, gravity yeah. would be amazing. And uh, he said, sure. And I said, let's make it a fundraiser for Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, ALS, which is what he has, a variant of that. And he said, yes. And we announced it the next day and said, okay, we're going to fly Professor Hawking into zero G. And we had news. And then I got two calls, one from our aircraft partner at the time saying, you're crazy. You're going to put the world's famous physicist into zero G. You're going to kill the guy. <laughs> and, and then I got a call from another organization. I won't mention who they are, but their initials are FAA. And, um, <laughs> and, and they said, you can't. What do you mean I can't? He said, well, your operating specifications of your airplane do zero G require that everybody must be in good physical health to do this. And clearly he's not. And I had the presence of mind to ask this person, well, who determines whether he's in physical health to do this? And they responded, I assume his doctor or an FAA doctor. And so what we then proceeded took us a couple months to get letters from his doctor and from a series of doctors saying that Professor Hawking could do this. And they said, okay, it's your risk. Go ahead. And so we ended up flying him at the Kennedy Space Center. We did a practice flight the day before, and we had a chance to fly Professor Hawking into zero G. If you Google Hawking and zero G, you'll see these photos of him just smiling. He had a few muscles he can control in his face. One end is Byron Lichtenberg. I'm on the other end. And it was just, it was a momentous event for me to give this man who so desired this. And he had such an amazing experience. And I'm so happy to have had a chance to deliver that to him. And by the way, on the tail of that, with funding from, I think, Northrop Grumman, we flew children who were wheelchair bound, who had never walked into zero G. And that was a momentous event as well. What was going through your head as you were looking at him? I was a kid in the can. Here's this, one of my heroes, right? And this was a dream come true, not only flying zero G, but mine having a chance to give him this experience. 
and also in the background is I hope I don't screw up. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of like a theme for all of your biggest wins is like the the nine year olds in there somewhere, but you're oh, also sure. yeah. I mean, kind of terrified too. I think it's more the nine year old that drives it. All of this stuff is hard and impossible until you make it happen, and it's not giving up. I guarantee you, zero G died a thousand deaths until it was finally approved by the FAA. Everybody was telling me, no, give up, give up, give up. The XPRIZE, the same thing. I mean, there were there were moments in time where I didn't have the dollars to continue and people said, it's never going to happen. For me, I was pissed off at NASA not getting me a chance to fly into space and how do I commercialize it? But you need that emotion to drive you beyond every single roadblock because otherwise you will not succeed. You'll give up before you succeed. You could be lucky, which is great, but most of the stuff is hard work. What do you want your legacy to be? How do you want to be remembered? Oh, God. You know, ultimately, it's being a great dad. It's underlying for me so important now than ever before. I mean, I can't think about that. I'm so thankful for what I have right now because my parents, what my dad my mom gave me. So that becomes sort of core, right? When everything is said and done. So your, your children kind of completely uh, that, change it, your it, priorities. It, it, it does. And then... You know, for me, it's my massively transformative purpose, right, is to inspire and guide the transformation of humanity on and off the earth. I think we're going to see a transformation of the human race. We're going to become something much more than we are, right? There are billions of dollars being invested right now on brain-computer interface, you know, with ultimately interfacing humans with AI, we're seeing CRISPR-Cas2. We're seeing gene editing where we're beginning to edit our own genome. We're seeing AI giving us new tool sets. So we're at this massively steep part of the curve, and we're going to be re-evolving, I think, the human race and society, how we govern, how we raise our kids, how we think, how we communicate is going to fundamentally change uh, well within the next 30 years. And so being part of that transformation it's what I think about. It's what guides me, what drives me. Well, thank you so much, Peter. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Success How I Did It from Business Insider. Our show is produced by Anna Mazarakis and Dan Richards. Our executive producer is Dan Bobkoff. And I'm Rich Filoni. Don't forget to subscribe to Success How I Did It on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We'll be back next week with another interview of success. <laughs>